Hello and welcome to a special episode of Fully Schooled. I'm your host, Matthew Frost, and in this episode we celebrate one of the Salvation Army's most prolific and revered composers, Major Leslie Condon. Born in West London in 1928, Condon is now regarded as one of the finest composers to have ever written for the Salvation Army. He was also a member of the International Staff Band, music editorial team, a fine E-flat bass player and also a vocal soloist. But beyond that, he was a friend, encourager and mentor for so many. Forty years ago this year, whilst out carolling with a Croydon Citadel band, Leslie Condon sadly passed away, or as we say in the Salvation Army, was promoted to glory. However, his legacy still lives on in his music and those who he encouraged and inspired. In this episode, we're going to hear tributes from some of those that worked with him, knew him and were friends with him. We'll be joined by Dr Stephen Cobb, Brian Johnson, Maurice Cooper, Kevin Norbury, Ian Parkhouse, Trevor Davis and Gordon Ward, all whom share snapshots of some of their fondest memories. Later on in this episode, we hear from Leslie Condon himself in a little-known recording taken from the 1976 Star Lake Music Camp where he gives an analysis of the present age, a piece many would regard as his magnum opus. But first, here is Dr Stephen Cobb sharing his tribute. For my generation growing up in the Salvation Army, uh, Les Conlon was a, a very, very significant figure. My first association with Les was really when uh, my dad was in the staff band with him. And uh, I remember Les playing uh, Celestial Morn on the E-flat bass. He was, a, he was an outstanding tuba player. But uh, I also remember him as a singer. He used to be the, solo, the vocal soloist in uh, an old-time Salvation Army song called Banners and Bonnets. And uh, I, I guess I remember him from those days. But during my teenage years, uh, as a student at uh, Tilney Hall School of Music for Boys, uh, Les was very influential on uh, myself and my generation. They were they were wonderful days at uh, at Tilney Hall, and uh, Les had a a unique way of relating uh, to young people. He was entirely himself. Um, he wasn't particularly close to any of us, and yet all of us felt uh, a real closeness and identity to him. Um, he was a he was a great musician. He was a wonderful meeting leader, um, but he was uh, his overall sort of influence on us has been for me uh, a lifetime influence. And uh, there is barely a week goes by that, um, which sounds a strange thing to say, but it's true. But there's barely a week that goes by that I don't think of uh, of Les Conman and the impact that he had on my life and on so many other people. My name is Brian Johnson and I'm the bandmaster at Southport Salvation Army. Um, I first got to know uh, Les Condon through the National School of Music for Boys, as it was then, held annually at Tilney Hall School in Hampshire. Um, as a wide-eyed 16-year-old, I went along in 1970 and first met him. I'd seen him from afar on numerous occasions when going to listen to the International Staff Band and also played pieces such as 
the marches rejoice and Kinshasa and suites such as Blythe Heritage and Splendour of Youth when I was in the YP band. But 1970 at Tilney Hall gave me the opportunity to get to know the man behind the name at the top of the piece of music for the first time. I was completely captivated by this humble man who was so inspirational in so many ways. As a musician, he was top notch, but it was his down to earth approachability that I found so engaging, not just his superb musicianship. For six years, I was able to spend the whole week under his instruction as a member of the A band, working on pieces such as Song of the Eternal, uh, called The Righteous, which of course were his own compositions, Day of the Spiritual by Brown Bowen, Takata by Wilfred Heaton, Warrior Psalm by Ray Stedman Allen and Exodus by Eric Ball. And, and um, even things like Schubert's Fifth Symphony, where he gave me an insight into the world of classical music. To get to know him better, I remember enrolling in some smaller group electives, such as composing, where he used illustrations of augmentation and diminution from some of his own compositions such as the previously mentioned Call the Righteous. Another group that I enrolled in because Les was leading was male voice singing. And I remember that one of the songs that we worked on uh, was the song we find in the songbook by Douglas Rolls, From That Sacred Hill. Um, uh, beautiful words that say, From that sacred hill, hope is gleaming still. Thy shame and grief he bore, go in peace, sin no more. And I think what he taught me during that male voice thing was the importance in Salvation Army music of the words behind the notes. It wasn't just uh, the dots on the page, but he spent a long time um, explaining to us what that song was all about, what it meant to him and what it... Uh, what it portrayed uh, and that was a great example. Les always wanted to be part of what was going on at music school and I particularly remember him taking part in the cross-country running race held every year. I didn't particularly remember him for his running prowess but more for his tatty string vest that he ran in. Um, Les was a people person always with time for you. There are so many small instances of him putting his faith into action in a practical way. He was certainly the perfect example of a great Salvationist musician who wasn't just about music. One thing I particularly remember, I'm old enough to remember a candidate's poster that um, Les Condon was the subject of this candidate's poster. And it said, it's the longest, hardest, most satisfying job in the army. And obviously he had been uh, picked as an example of an officer who really put that into practice. And that's what I remember him for. Just a great example of a humble Christian salvationist musician. I think he had more influence on my life during those six years than possibly anybody else, even though it was only for one week in the year.
a great, great guy. Well, I'm Maurice Cooper, and I was introduced to the ISB in 1960, where Liz had already been in the band for some months before that. Immediately we became friends. We would talk together about family, sharing our experiences, and of course, we talked about the band. The pieces that he was arranging, the pieces he was writing, and I was always inquisitive. He used to confide in me about his personal life, about uh, his service in the army, about what he was doing, his ups and downs, his happiness, his regrets, if any, and his disappointments. I discovered very early on that he's a prolific composer. When you think the amazing ability he had to write for any occasion, and yet at the same time he was very self-effacing, there's no boasting about, about him, he just got on with it. For example, Celestial Morn. Who would have thought that an E-flat e bass could play like that with laser on the end of it? Call of the Righteous, where he introduced in the bands timpani and cymbals. So if a band didn't have somebody who could play the timpani, they couldn't play Call of the Righteous. Bogner Regis, the army's holiday camp week down at Bogner, and so they called and wrote a march for it. Easter Glory, a most significant story of Easter. Amazing. And then the bass duet that he wrote. That, that was brought to the staff band just a few days before I went to America. And with very little rehearsal, it was put on our programmes as we travelled around the world. And it was first played in Perth, in, in Australia after just a few days rehearsal. Then of course there's his piece, Present Age. That, I've never experienced anything like it, but just a few weeks before the Albert Hall occasion with the Sonsley's uh, Mammasters, the staff band usually pulled out a new piece of music. And I remember we didn't have anything at all on the sand until Colonel Adams and the band looked in the eyes to Les Condon. And the next practice, Les turned up with four or five sheets uh, of manuscript. And when we got our part, there were four or five lines of music that the Colonel rehearsed. Next practice, another four or five lines. The next practice, we had the introduction. So after four or five days on present age, we had the introduction, letter A, letter B, and letter C. It was amazing how Red, how Les turned turn this up. But then we got towards the end of the, uh, of the rehearsal, the week before the Albert Hall, and uh, Les turned up with the last section. He'd sat up all Thursday night writing the last fast movement of present age, and that came to the band for our rehearsal. We played it through once at 25 past one on the Friday, and we played it at the Royal Albert Hall on the Saturday at the Music Leaders Festival, and that went on the record. And I tell you, I'm glad I was uh, playing in the band when that was put on record. Les was quite a, a family man, and he told us uh, about uh, what happened on one occasion when he went home after a staff band weekend. We'd been away for a full weekend, travelled back, went home, and Les got home, as most of us did, 
two or three o'clock in the morning. Now his wife Ruth complained that he made too, too much noise. He would switch on the lights and bang the doors. So the next time he went home, very quietly, key in the lock, shoes off, no lights on, upstairs, got into bed, and he nudged Ruth and he said, is this number 169 and are you Ruth Condon? Which of course was quite a laugh. We went to a party at RSA's house near Christmas and towards the end of the party, Les came in with a crash helmet on. He'd been out with his band and Eva, my wife and I were sitting at the door and when Les came in, she looked at him. Eva said, the Salvation Army's Barry Sheen. Barry Sheen, as you may know, was uh, the world champion on uh, motorbike racing. We sat and sang carols and then at the end we had our coffee and Les went home and that was two days before Christmas. I asked him if he would uh, write something for me because I was conducting a music week in France. And Les said yes, he'd write a piece of music but that piece never got written. Two days later he'd gone to his reward. Now to hear from Leslie Condon. Here he is speaking at the Star Lake Music Camp in 1976 about his masterpiece, The Present Age. Words and sentiment that surely resonated to those listening at the time, but that seemed just as poignant and relevant today. Writing music. You know, somebody said to me once, um, what's it feel like to sit and listen to one of your own pieces being played? What is it like uh, sitting in a band and playing it? What's it like rehearsing it under some other conductor? What's it like rehearsing it yourself? It's a very difficult question to answer because quite frankly you feel a mixture of um, satisfaction, not smoke satisfaction, but a feeling of some kind of achievement. And yet mingled with that there's a feeling of inadequacy that it could have been a lot better but it's too late now because it's in black and white and in print and you can't print it all over again. And another sense too in which you feel a little embarrassed to think that a group of 30 players have taken the trouble to rehearse something that's come out of more grey matter. It's quite an honour to say nothing of the fact that people will be willing to sit and listen to this stuff. When I work it out on uh, paper and I look at it and say, well, I suppose it'll work, let's wait and see what it sounds like. And then to think that people are kind enough to say, well, they get something out of it. Um, perhaps they're being over polite. Perhaps they don't. Perhaps they're really like uh, some people with whom I billeted once and who didn't know that I did an awful lot of writing. And they said, oh, we went to the commissioning recently in London and the staff band played something. It was dreadful. And uh, they said they can't remember the title. The title wasn't announced. The staff band played it in a kind of an interlude while the cadets were getting ready for a presentation, a pageant. And I said, what tunes are you coming in? Can't remember. And uh, they said, but it was all funny old harmony. It sounded as if the band were playing what they liked. And uh, I couldn't think of any composer who'd uh, got to that dizzy dimensions of just writing on the paper, play what you like, fellas. 
Um, and then uh, suddenly the lady said, Oh, darling, it had the tune I'll follow thee of life the giver in it. Oh, hello, here it comes. I've got a selection with I'll follow thee of life the giver in it. And I didn't tell them this. I let them still sort of feel around and try to change the subject. And uh, it didn't, and they were still rooting after this title. What was it? What was it? And eventually, um, it had to come out, to cut a long story short. And there were a few red faces around the table, and the host suddenly said, Well, it's not a bad piece, really. <laughs> I suppose it's because we don't understand what it's all about. But they said some very unkind things about it, really. <laughs> and I said, well, please don't worry. Every man and every woman has a perfect right to his own, her own opinion. And uh, some music we like and some music we don't. The people I quarrel with are the ones who never bother to try to like certain types of music. Or they listen to somebody speaking in French or German and say, it's rubbish because I can't understand. When of course the German or the Frenchman will understand the profoundness of what may be said in their particular language because they understand it. Now, the Salvation Army's musical machine is a most unique one in this sense that within the short space of a hundred years we have managed to be a worldwide movement and that's a pretty small comparison really to the whole length of time that the Church of God has existed and its music. But within that fairly short space of time we have somehow managed to cover a fairly wide panorama of different types of music, vocal uh, music, the gospel song, the devotional song, anthem type of music for voices, and uh, in later years, gone into the rock world slightly, and the pop song, and uh, in the brass world, of course, we have branched out in all kinds of directions. And there's a sense in which a lot of us, even as salvationists, are not fully aware of what does actually exist. That's a shame. Well, there it is. We at the music camp are having a great time, and uh, we're digging into some of the music that is here in Salvation Army repertoire and uh, trying to learn something about it. But coming back to this question of, of writing it, have you ever made a cake? Um, it's very similar, really. Well, there is a difference between a piece of music and a piece of cake, I must admit. But uh, in the sense that sometimes you make the cake and you taste it afterwards, it goes bad and soggy in the middle because you haven't put enough of this or that into it. Or you've overloaded it with too much of this, and consequently the taste isn't balanced, and you taste more of one thing than another, and you say, it's a bad cake. Now, some pieces of music, you see, are just like this, where you've got to get the right sort of ingredient and balance in it. If, for instance, you have... Um, a piece of music that's 10 minutes long, there's got to be a sort of a balance about the thing all the way through so that it isn't kind of um, jerky and unnecessarily detached and that there must be a relationship both in the thought about which it is being written um, and uh, in the theme itself on the musical side of things. There must also be a character. We were talking about this in the composition class. I mean, somebody was saying about this particular piece of the present age, about which we shall talk in a moment, um, we don't like that dreadful march in the middle. Bah, bah, it sounds awful of discord. And I have to say, well, it's like this. 
that really is meant to describe the horrors of this world. Your places like Belfast, the places where all noble thoughts are trodden down by this ism or that ism, the problems between races, the difficulties where kids are brought up to learn to hate the country next door simply because they were born in this country. So you say, now how can I describe that state of affairs against which the Christian has to portray his message? You say, ah, I'll do this. And of course it doesn't work. Because that's Mendelssohn's spring song, and that describes a spring day. But we're not describing a spring day at that particular part of it. It's an ugly, terrible, guttural, hateful scene. And consequently, the music tells it in that way. And all kinds of devices that we use to make the point there. Uh, similarly, there's a part in here, which we shall play to in a moment, which depicts the flippancy of this world. You know, the background against which we still have to preach our gospel with people who couldn't care tuppence about what they're saying. And you as Christians, and I, have to say God is love against that background. And that's not an easy thing these days. And so the music is flippant. A soppy tune, really. It's dark. And, um, sorry, Dad. And, uh, <laughs> it really doesn't mean anything. And yet it is typical of the background against which we sometimes have to portray the gospel message. Purposelessness. And wow, we do have to do this. It might help if we start at the beginning of this piece and uh, to think in terms of a young man, shall we say, of 17, 18, 19 years old. He's just found the law. He's just been converted. And like all new converts, he's going to turn this world upside down. He comes out of his shell and he's so convinced about his message that he's going to tell the whole world what it's all about. And he's so sure that everybody's going to listen to what he's got to say because he's got the finest message in the world. They're sure to stop listening. And so he gives it out. You know what sometimes happens? We give it out in a spirit of arrogance, mixed up with confidence. Mixed up with brashness, forthrightness. You've got to listen to me, folks, sort of thing, you know. Okay, let's see if we can capture that in the first few bars. This little tune, which, if you like, is the theme of uh, our young friend who has just been converted and wants to tell the world what he has found. Here we go. people's attention but the world uh, suddenly says so what and boy there's nothing worse than being a Christian is there kids when you try to witness for the Lord and people don't give you direct opposition they say huh I've got to try and so they take his rather noble tune let it be folks and listen to what they do with it but let it be they laugh at it and scorn it and uh, dance round it and make fun of it. Let's see if we can play that same tune 
rhythmically at letter B, please. But it's lost its arrogance. At the beginning, it was bom, 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 bom. all posh and pompous, you know. Uh, did you use those words in America? <laughs> but it's the same tune, but it's lost its integrity because it's being laughed at, you see. Now, any Christian, especially young one, who gets to that point, young people, where you suddenly say, well, ha. Huh, I'm not spending the rest of my life preaching the gospel and being laughed at. You get to a point, and I expect all of you have got to that point at some time or another. I think I saw a signpost down here where it said, Wheat's End. And we've all been there at some time. Where we shrug our shoulders and say, well, what do we do? Do we carry on? Do we pack up? Or what do we do? We certainly stop, and there are certain question marks. So let's just do that. Where we stop, please, people, a change of key there with the basses coming on those three, um, oh, got it, uh, quarter notes. I wish we spoke the same language. Quarter notes and then the dotted um, half note, please, on the fours and trombones. Here, these are thinking chords, if you know what I mean. He's being brought to a stop. He's scratching his head. state in his life, you see, where he just doesn't know which way to turn. Um, I'd like you to listen to, to all that mess that was going on, this uncertainty as to which way you're going to take one up. Let us see, please, trombones. Listen to this tune, will you? Trombones. I'll count three so you can feel what the pace is, right? That's bass trombone as well. Three. One, two, three. Recognize it? It's there again, you see. And it's trying to rear its noble head above all the confusion that's going on elsewhere. Not very successfully, because there's so much going on. But they're trying, you see, to keep that tune alive. You notice that the notes are longer. Sometimes composers do that. They make a tune, and those of you who are musical students will know what I mean. They make this tune longer, and it's a device called augmentation. You know, Bach does it quite a lot if you've studied Bach in his strettos at the end of his fugues, um, where a tune comes out with big, broad notes, twice the value of each note, and that's called augmentation. All right, now let's, um, we'll skip for a moment and come back to that a little later on. We've got to the point where he really doesn't know what to do. I speak now to the students, of course, but I'm also speaking to our adult guests here. Every one of us who have accepted the name of Jesus has to testify that at some time or another we've had to weigh up ourselves again. And we have had to decide whether or not we're going to serve the present age in which we live. For some of us here, our present age has extended back to 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. 
For us here at the music school, 1976 is our present age. We sometimes sing to the tune of Southport, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh may it all my powers engage to be my master's will. The melody is in the major key. The harmony is in the minor key. To give that atmosphere of doubt and thoughtfulness. Let's try it, shall we? Two bars before D, please, basses. the background against which we're going to grow up. We young people, sorry, you young people, that things. Um, against which you've got to grow up. Here's this flippant tune, and uh, the boy or the girl at college, high school, at any kind of background um, where there is laughter and ridicule at the Christian faith. Take heart in this, will you? All the way through the ages, people have tended to jive at things which are honourable and noble. People still have a sly laugh at folks who are honest. People still have a sly laugh at people uh, who play the game in relationships between the sexes. People still have a sly dig at those who, you know, want to play the game properly and to be good characters and men and women. We've always had it, we always will. And this is something about background flippancy. Let's have it, shall we? Let's, um, let's uh, It's a silly tune, and in the music it's got scherzoso, which is Italian for joke, not taken seriously. The tune is a circular one, in the sense that it doesn't come to an end. It's going on. You ever seen a dog chasing its tail? Okay, let's have Here it is, the flippancy in the background of the world. Right. Thank you. 
You see, it's marked on the music in that particular section, Burlesca Mente. And there are four main things going on there, and all of them fall into each other. And so it's a right mix-up. Let's just uh, analyze them very briefly. First of all, there's the cornet tune, which we won't ask them to play again. And then there's this background here of uh, fairground music, if you like. Uh, let's have these people, please. The solo horn, first horn, second horn, first baritone, second baritone, and uh, lower E flat bass percussion. Those people, please. And B flat bass, I'm sorry. Is that a G? In the middle of that, somebody is trying to sing the present to serve the present age. So faintly, but they're trying nobly to stick their message right to the forefront of it all. So can I have both the euphoniums, please, um, up and lower? And now the upper E flat bass part, and listen to this. But it's done in such a drunken way. This is what we think of your tune. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Salvation Army flag and say, we believe that God loves you. That's tough. Okay, let's go. Let it G, please. Enjoy it. seems it's a sad and awful waste of life to think that there are hooligans and people who will do this kind of thing. And there are no causes that justify that kind of murder. The thing is that the Salvation Army still holds its open airs in Belfast, and I've stood with them more than once and stood in a street that has been patrolled with soldiers trying to tell them of the love of God. And I couldn't help thinking how near to that situation is this particular music that we're going to play to you now. Where we have to visit all kinds of folks who disbelieve the Christian faith and uh, tell them that despite the hatred and the wars and the things that are going on around, God still is the answer. 
They shrug their shoulders and say, huh, you tell me that God is a God of love and he allows this and this and this. And that some people like that, it's so hopeless to try and explain to them that it is man's folly that brings us to a state that we're in. Anyway, my job as the composer is to try to portray the horror of all this. And this is what we've done here. This is a march, marked on the music, Marchia Grotesco. And um, I leave you to judge whether it brings you that feeling of horror and revulsion. H, please. Some, I think it's just here, is it? No, it's later on. I'm anticipating. But later on, the cornets repeat what is happening there. And uh, youngsters who are cornet players in particular, have you ever tried flutter tummy, flog the song? Where somehow you get, I've been speaking to them, uh, I can't get it right. But you get that terrible, grotesque sound, which you'll hear in just a moment when we come to that um, repetition. Now, can we move on, please, to letter. I suppose we've all sung in prayer meetings, we who are young, we who are older, I'll follow thee at life the giver, I'll follow thee suffering redeemer. And you and I, whatever age we are, have often been guilty of singing things without very, very much thought, you know. And the number of times we have happily said, I'll follow thee, deny thee, never, by thy grace I'll follow thee. Peter said the same thing, of course, and I suppose Judas did as well. And all the disciples said that they would go and die with Christ, but uh, they weren't to be seen when, uh, when the time came. And we've all let him down. Well, now, somehow, in the context of this piece, where this young man begins to realize that despite all this, he is going to promise to follow. But let's see what happens. You think of the words as we play this chorus too. There's just a little bit of material before we actually get to the chorus that is so well known, I'll follow thee. Never, but he doesn't, can't, because he realizes what a big thing he's saying. 
So the music stops there, and there's a big silence. But suddenly he plucks up courage again and says, right, I will do it. But something else happens this time. The horror march comes right back in and actually laughs at him. Um, you hear the trombones in a very macabre laugh. Do it well, do it badly. I mean, you know, it's well. Do it do badly well. A real snigger with newts in and, uh, you know, let's see if we can get that now. Okay, we picked that up then, fellas, from where? Two before K will do it, wouldn't it? Yes. Two before K, the last three eighth notes of that bar. Ooh, I'm going to say all this when I get back to England. They won't know what eighth notes and sixteenths are. Are you ready? One, two, and three. intentions, kids, somebody always kicks us down a bit. We find it a job to get up. But look, keep getting up. Every time it happens to you, whether it's a snigger of the indifference of the world, or whether it's the background of hatred, whatever it is, keep on believing in Christ, because there isn't another way. There is not another way. And of course he comes to that point where he realizes that before he can really present the message of God, he's got to know the peace of God in his own heart. Now, getting a little bit technical here, we haven't talked much about the technical side of things because we really wanted to get the message of this music out loud. But sometimes, you know, do you, put it this way, at school, do you ever sing uh, rounds? Do you call them rounds over here? Catches and uh, you know three blind mice, where one person starts, the next voice comes in, the next voice comes in. Really, that is a very simple form of the classical device called canon. A canon is a tune that starts off and then that comes in again with another voice one bar later. You have a look when you get back to your core. You may be able to do it before you get back to number forty-one in the tune. Tallis. It goes and the first baritone, second baritone, and the euphonium part play the tune four beats later than the cornet. Tallis was an organist at Waltham Abbey in north of London for many years, and um, he was a clever musician. And this tune is so cleverly constructed you can have about eight voices coming in after itself. You can do it backwards, sideways, inside out. It's such a clever texture of notes. And um, here, there is a canon, but it's a canon at the fourth, which simply means this. The tune starts off on one note, and then the tune is repeated again on another note lower down. When we do this, 
I forgot to say, think of the words, be still and know that I am God, from Psalm 46, which is that leveling influence which is supposed to happen at this point. Here we go. Does that tune chasing the one, but at four notes lower? And um, that's something that, uh, if you take up composition, to try to do that makes you uh, quite disciplined in your mind. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I suppose that uh, the young people haven't sung this song very much. When peace like a river attendeth my way, do you sing it much over here? When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Written under tragic conditions by a man who was traveling to England, but whose wife and family went on a boat previous, uh, and he had to travel later on. His family was lost at sea, and uh, had he traveled on that same boat, he would have been as well. But in the middle of all his tragedy, he wrote this song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. And our young Christian is comforting himself at this point with that thought. One more thing I want to do before we finish um, this. I hope you're not bored sick. But um, let, let's appeal. This finishes the whole piece with a rather challenging type of music, which seems to say to the young person, now come on, get your sleeves rolled up, and really go out and do the job properly. But listen to this tune, will you? That's a creep. There's a sense of purpose and drive as he goes towards the end of that. Um, it is a musical exercise, it's true. But for the young people who have patiently listened to us this week in our practices and uh, listened this evening, Bear in mind that all composers write because they've got something to say, even if that something is not necessarily on religious lines. They express themselves in sound. This particular piece, like many others in Salvation Army repertoire, says a message, talks about it. And it could be that this is the very state that you are in, uh, recognizing the problems of being a Christian in 1976. And it could be that you say, well, I'll tread water for the rest of my days and not bother. I hope that this will be a musical experience for you, but more than that, it'll um, make you resolve to follow Christ even more than you have done in the past. Hello, I'm Kevin Norbury, and uh, I first encountered Leslie Condon as a teenager through Tilney Hall. And I immediately was starstruck because already by then 
he was one of my musical heroes. But uh, behind that sort of exalted view of Les was a very, very down-to-earth, humble man who used to join in with all sorts of activities at Tilney Hall. One memorable activity I remember was a, a football match. And uh, just to give it a bit of context, the uh, piece that the mass bands were playing on the Saturday afternoon concert was James Curnow's arrangement of the procession of the nobles. And Les was playing in a football match on the Thursday afternoon. And a childhood friend of mine who was also at Tilney Hall from Andover in those days, which is where I was born and brought up, took Les out in a, a very, I'm sure unintended, vicious tackle. And from then on, Les, for the rest of the week was on crutches and the piece became known as the procession of the nobbled and uh he made a great joke about that and uh took it all in very good stead the thing i remember about les was he was a devoted family man he was a wonderful christian a very deep thinker and uh he always had time for everybody. I remember going to him with a, a little piece that I'd written and uh, it was pretty awful, but he spent about half an hour with me going through it and pointing out things and making suggestions for improvements. And that always stuck with me um, that this man in my view was up here, had time to sit and help me with that in the middle of a busy week at Tilney Hall. Of course, I got to know him better later when I worked in the International Music Editorial Department when Ray Steadman Allen was the head and uh, RSA hired me and Les was the uh, senior editor. <clears throat> in those days, we were at Judd Street and uh, RSA had one office. They were really quite thin partition walls and Les Condon had a little box or a hutch, as we called it, in the other corner of the main office. And RSA frequently would come flying through from Les, having had a, a heated discussion with somebody on the telephone and go into Les and sound off and uh, then come flying back out and go back into his office. And Les would very often just walk out the door and look after RSA like that. It was always a very entertaining time. Les used to arrive in motorbike leathers. He always used to ride a motorbike to work. And uh, he was always early and uh, worked very, very hard at whatever he did, whether it was preparing for a weekend, writing a sermon or editing. He was a superb music editor. And of course, one of the finest composers the army has ever had. Um, I do remember when RSA left for Australia, um, and I mean, it's, it's, we can talk about this now because I think of the time distance, everybody expected that Les would be appointed the head of the music editorial department, and sadly he was overlooked, but it didn't stop him continuing to write music. Um, I remember that he wrote a cornet solo um, 
for Steve Cobb. And uh, the other thing he wrote for the uh, ISB while I was in it was a tome poem called Four Men of Faith. And um, he, of course, wrote Fairfield Fantasia for the uh, Fairfield Hall concert, which celebrated Croydon Citadel's centenary. I was the organist on that occasion. And uh, I also accompanied Evelyn Hughes, who was a vocal soloist, and he wrote a solo for her. Um, he was always composing, but he always fixed, fitted the composing in with his work. He was, he was very honorable in that respect. Um, I personally loved the man very much. He was a devoted family man, as I said, and uh, his dear wife, Ruth, was a lovely lady who was very supportive and his kids were quite amazing. In particular, I think of the funeral at Croydon Citadel and the memorial concert where everything was very upbeat and uh, the kids gave a wonderful moving tribute even though they'd lost their father very suddenly just before Christmas. And it's hard to believe that was 40 years ago. He was a, a very um, forward thinking composer I've often imagined where he would have gone had he stayed with us in terms of what he was composing. Um, I love the man immensely. I was privileged to play the piano at the funeral and I, I was a pallbearer for him in the funeral at Fakenham. That was an event he would have enjoyed because he had the whole staff band standing out in the uh, cemetery at Fakenham, very exposed area open to everything the elements could throw at us that day. We had wind, rain, hail, even a brief spattering of snow. And uh, it's the sort of thing that would have just made him smile, thinking we were all suffering that on his behalf. But basically, I, I still miss the man to this day. Um, I, I was very close to him indeed. And uh, he uh, was a great encourager, sadly missed. My name's Ian Parkhouse, and I was in uh, Les Condon's band at Croydon Citadel uh, as a young man, and um, uh, for only a very, very short period of time before he died. Um, but it was just a, a great thing to be part of uh, Les's band. There were quite a few uh, guys of my age, um, and... Uh, Leslie Condon thought the world of us and we thought the world of him and uh, not not without its uh, its traumas um, and he was he was a great guy to to be in rehearsal with um, he do his very best to give you some kind of of pat on the back uh, the one I always remember him saying is We'd, we'd finished paying a piece and it was reasonably okay. And he said, that was, that was great. Well done. You sound just like Black Dyke on a bad night. Uh, <laughs> things, things like that. He never let us get too, uh, too, too far away with uh, how, how good he thought we were, but uh, yeah, it, I think we would infuriate him um, a lot and uh, his, his throwing his, his fingers through his hair, um, what he had left of it, um, was his sign of exasperation uh, with us, but uh, he, he was he was always been a hero of mine, and the music he wrote has always been my favourite uh, compositions. Present age, Call of the Righteous, Celebration, uh, all of those kinds of things. So uh, just just brilliant to be uh, within uh, the band uh, that that he sort of put together, uh, and yeah, uh, just a tragedy that uh, that we lost him so soon. 
and uh, we were due to go on a tour uh, to uh, Sweden and Denmark in the Easter after he died. Uh, the band did go, but obviously it, it was Les's band, and uh, yeah, we were we were sorry that, uh, that that he wasn't with us. Hello, I'm uh, Trevor Davis, and um, I first met Les Condon in 1971 when, as a young corps officer in East London, I was asked to lead a music school Sunday morning meeting at Summary Court, at which Les was the music director. Um, we got on a little bit chatting and um, I was having to look after the little band at the core where we were stationed and Les graciously came along to do a rehearsal a few weeks later. And um, suddenly, three months later, I found myself the National Bandmaster, whether those events are all connected or not, I'm not quite sure. But there it was. I was working in the office next to this genius uh, who I, I sort of regarded with awe for the sake of compositions that had become favourites and were to become favourites more as he wrote them. Uh, you've only got to mention the Song of the Eternal and everybody else will. Peace and glory, call of the righteous, celebration, celestial morn, song of exuberance, they, they were pouring out. And not just those beat numbers, but um, the front line, Bogner Regis, which played a large part in our departmental programme. Uh, I don't need to elucidate on the quality of Les's music. But of course, I shared with him the Ministry of uh, Musicians' Councils and all kinds of visits to divisions and corps, and um, had such a huge respect for his platform ministry. Uh, he enjoyed his preaching. He enjoyed anything that he could do pastorally as we moved around the country. So that was uh, another aspect of Les and his work. And um, in those days, we had a little departmental van, a little blue van, and uh, we shared this and travelled, well, I guess, thousands of miles over the few years that I worked with Les. And um, those moments of sharing uh, personal feelings, convictions, talking about music, talking about the army, uh, were very precious moments in their own way and very personal as well. It was uh, mentioned to me that a story might be interesting. Uh, I've thought of uh, lots of things because there's had such a, a sense of humour. But I, I think the one that I would, would tell, it was to our embarrassment, a joint embarrassment. Uh, Les had been a very keen cyclist, but when I arrived with a 50cc moped, um, Les was quite taken with this because he was 10 years older than me. And uh, so we went out one afternoon and bought ourselves two new uh, Suzuki, I think, 50cc mopeds and um, travelled into THQ 
every day on these. And one day, Les and I were off to Hemel Hempstead for an evening rehearsal. It was a sunny afternoon, and we went down to the garage, meaning to get in our little blue van. Uh, but in fact, seeing our mopeds there, Les says, come on, let's go on the bikes. And so we went to Hemel Hempstead on a beautiful afternoon, did a songs to practice, uh, and came out full of uh, joy to find that at 10 o'clock it was absolutely bucketing down. And the two of us in full uniform had to ride back to Croydon, where we both lived. Um, perhaps I shouldn't boast about that story. It was not funny at the time. Hey, my name's Gordon Ward. I was born in England uh, and uh, grew up in Yorkshire. and. Um, now live in the United States. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, there were basically two bands that always came to mind in our household. One was Black Dyke, obviously, because it was just down the road. And the other one was the ISB, International Staff Band. And of course, uh, Leslie Condon was a big part of that band at that time when I was growing up, uh, tuba soloist. And I remember a couple of duets. Um, and so he was, a well-known figure in our household and me in particular growing up in in a banding household with my father who was a b-flat bass player uh, but really um the the time i personally had interaction with him was when uh every summer i went down to tilney hall music school and uh when i first went there it was norman beercroft who was the um director there and then leslie condon took over so I was part of the A-band there for a few years under his direction. Uh, he was a very respected figure. I mean, we were teenagers growing up at that point and, uh, you know, very impressionable. And, uh, of course, uh, we respected him. We certainly did. That was for sure. And um, uh, some of the things I remember about him, that uh, he was very approachable. Um, I remember each year we always try, tried to get very inventive with the A-band photograph. And uh, uh, we had one where we all went into the little village of Rotherwick outside of Tilney by the uh, little pond there. Another one by the pool at Tilney. And another one in uh, a friend of mine, uh, Malcolm Quinn's car. He had a little Ford Anglia back then. It was so small. We parked it in the middle of the quadrangle there at Tilney Hall and piled as many people into the car and on top of the car and around the car as we could. And, and uh, Leslie Condon was just a part of that. And uh, uh, I think the guys appreciated how approachable uh, he was at that point. Um, probably the biggest memory, remember we're, we're talking over 50 years ago now. So, you know, in another century, another time. Um, but the biggest thing that I think all of us remember if we were in that, band was when he brought out uh, the present age in manuscript and uh, whether we played it out before the ISB or it was around about that time but we like to think that we uh, were the first band to really get stuck into the present age and uh, for those of us who were in the band and quite a few notable uh, musicians around the army world still still around um, we, we call ourselves we were in the present age band you know, and it, it's a significant thing. I don't think we realized at that point 
uh, back in time, as I say, impressionable teenagers that um, how important that was. But when he was writing, writing this music and he brought it out and we played it uh, under his direction, you know, that uh, over the years, that's just become more significant in, uh, in our growing up period, our musical growing up, our spiritual growing up, you know, um, and uh, again, you meet people over over the years and you realize that you were in the same band together. And if we were in that band, we were in the present age band. So that was just so such a significant ev event uh, that has just grown over the years. Um, I, I can still remember his uh, baton technique, the way he hold, held that baton, where he, he uh, moved his arms. If I just saw that movement without seeing the face of who was conducting, I would know it would be Leslie Condon. It's such a, it was such a interesting and unique uh, technique that he had um, conducting the band. So yes, uh, great memories. It's a long, long time ago. And I remember getting um, a message on that Christmas day, right after he passed away on Christmas Eve, I believe it was, um, and was so shocked. Uh, I can only think that, you know, given another 20, 25 years plus of composing music, what could have come out of Leslie Condon? Um, just really too premature, you know, for such a talented, uh, gifted uh, man. So uh, I'm just happy to uh, share with all the others about uh, those, just those few moments in time that I had to interact with the, uh, the great Leslie Condon. Here is the iconic original recording of The Present Age, played live by the International Staff Band on the stage of the Royal Albert Hall in 1968. <laughs> Thank you. 
to serve the present age, my calling to fulfil. A challenge for those in 1968, a charge for those in 1976, and a mission for us in 2023, just the same. I'm afraid that that's all we've got time for in this episode. But before we go, a few thanks. Thank you to our terrific guests for your tributes. Steve, Ian, Trevor, Kevin, Morris, Brian and Gordon, thank you for taking time to speak with us. Thank you to the Condon family for allowing us use of that recording and to the USA East for releasing it. Thank you to Simon Gash, our producer, for effortlessly tying all the parts of this episode together. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting this episode and playlist alongside it. And finally, thank you for taking time to listen. See you next episode. Goodbye and God bless. Thank you.